Okay. Make a joyful noise. Joyful noise. Morning, church. God is good. And all the time. Amen. She's tangled. Hold on. So this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. My Lord and my God, you are worthy of all praise and worship. From the highest heaven to the lowest chasms, your rule is complete and omnipresent. We are sinners, Lord. Our transgressions are stains on our souls. We walk in circles and dance to the tune of the world system. Only your sacrifice at the cross keeps us from the miry deep. Only your love and goodness keep us from totally sliding into despair. Please, in your mercy, help us to live like you and to love all, including our enemies. We thank you, great Lord, for your teaching and your patience. And, we, and in our struggles, please help us to see you in everything and everyone we encounter. And we pray this through your loving countenance, through the loving countenance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Hebrews 11, 6 through 9. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. slain standing at the center of throne of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent into the earth he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne and when he had taken it 
The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And, the, you, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, that they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the, the throne with the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Oh, 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 oh,
Please read with me the response of reading, brothers and sisters. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. So, uh, from the uh, New International Version Grace and Truth uh, Study Bible, this final psalm of David closes the Davidic collection of the psalms, uh, Psalms 138 through 145. Psalm 145 is an acrostic that is a poem that starts each line with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Maybe Pastor Luke can instruct us on that sometime. Uh, so blessed are those ways, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, to walk according to the law of the Lord. The effect is beauty, order, memorability, and a sense of thoroughness, A through Z. This comprehensive hymn of praise celebrates God's covenant name by glorifying his res reputation, kingdom, provision, and special relationship with his people. The psalm resounds with voices exalting, extolling, praising, and speaking God's name. The song begins and ends with eternity forever and ever, because the glory of God has no beginning and end. He is the Lord and the God of Israel and of the nations. And David remembers the grand history of God's mighty works through the generations, 
David doesn't name specific events, but praises God for his character and his works in general. The psalm is even more significant for Christians, for they have a longer history to review than David had. They can look back on Christ's first coming and see his gospel now spreading throughout the earth. The stories cascade from generation to generation, leaving behind a joyful legacy. Over the course of history, God has proven what he revealed to Moses. His gracious and compassionate, slow he is gracious and compassionate, compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. As we uh, go into prayer, I need a couple of people to help with the offering. Uh, if we can do that. Anybody? Tommy can't do that. He's, uh, he's incapacitated. James, come on. We'll break you in. How's that? As we, uh, as we pray for the offering, um, just uh, understand that um, down in uh, Florida, there are many people still hurting from the hurricane that came through. And it looks like hurricane season's heating up again. So uh, we need to pray for the, those people down there. We need to pray for the people in Hawaii. Um, they're still missing some of them, and it's not a, not a good thing. Uh, so there's a lot of hurting going around, and uh, we'll, lift, we'll lift them up in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to pray. We think of the people uh, in Florida who uh, lost, uh, uh, some cases, everything. The devastation was pretty vast. Uh, in a lot of places, they're still without power, without air conditioning. Uh, Father, we just uh, ask that you would supply the need that is down there. Watch over the people. And Father, I, I ask that uh, for the people in Maui still recovering from this horrible fire, that you watch over them, provide for them. Uh, they need water, they need uh, uh, food, and their electrical grid is still pretty much down. So, Father, we, we lift these people up before you. And, Father, uh, for our own country, the violence that's happening all around, um, it's just sad. It's sad. We need, we need a revival, Father, in churches and a spiritual awakening in this country. And, Father, we give to your work. We give to the work of the church. Would you bless the gift and the giver? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead, James. Thank you. Yeah, you did a good job. Thank you.
We took James off guard, guard but he did well. Um, uh, if you have your Bibles, would you turn to John chapter 12? Thank you for being here today. Uh, John chapter 12, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. And the first 11 verses uh, have a lot in them. It uh, talks about worship. There's all sorts of misconceptions today, uh, primarily because of the, um, the celebritizing of churches and pastors uh, and praise bands and all of that stuff as to what real worship is. We've lost sight of it. Um, I, I would venture to say, and I don't want to criticize uh, you know, other, other churches, but sometimes uh, attending a church service is no different than going to a concert. And I'm not sure that's the way the Lord intended it to be. Uh, and I'm not saying God can't use it, but I, I will say this. If we lose the focus of what worship is all about, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. I can tell we're in trouble because church attendance is down all over. We're in trouble. The American church is in trouble. Um, I, you know, I know some churches who spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to make their churches look like a studio. And, uh, you know, people are, are attracted by that stuff. Um, you know, I, sometimes I wait for the fireworks to go off behind the praise band and, and all that stuff. Um, and I, I know... I would just suggest to you is that what really worship is all about. We've become a, a culture addicted to, how can I say it, an experience, but the wrong type of experience, right? Um, when some of you who have miles on you, I don't want to say older, but uh, some, of, some of you had miles on you. Uh, when we used to hear people sing or, or play, we used to um, judge them by the quality of their voice, the music, and so on and so forth. Now it's who has the best effects, the lighting. Um, I remember some years ago, we, we went to a Michael W. Smith concert, which was great, by the way. It was a concert. Um, in, uh, out in Trenton, and I happen to like his music. He's got a great voice. It wasn't a worship service. It was a concert, and they were using strobe lights, you know, during the concert. Now, for a person like me with vertigo, I fell out of my chair. I literally fell out of my chair. I had to go out in the hallway to listen because the lighting was just so intense, you know, and... You know, again, it's strobe lights. It's all the spotlights. It's this and that. We've made worship something it was never intended to be. Isn't that what Matt Redmond said in that first song? Lord, forgive me. For a song is not what you desire. For you look deeper into the heart. But, you know, I, in the past, uh, I'll be very honest with you, in the past I've been criticized because uh, I was told the services lacked, lacked the wow factor. The what? 
the wow factor. You know what that says. We want more glitz and glamour and, you know, catch the people's attention and, and this and that. And, you know, I'm saying the wow factor is Jesus. He's the wow factor. Not me. Not the musicians. Jesus. And so we get our heads all, all muddled up in this stuff. And, and a lot of this is because we have celebritized people and we haven't elevated Jesus. We celebritized, uh, celebritized the experience and we haven't exalted Christ. And we have to be careful of this because it's, it's, it's real dangerous. I can tell you this, that when Jesus is the focus and when we are worshiping in spirit and truth, he's going to wow you. He's going to wow you. How can Jesus wow us when we refuse to worship him in spirit and truth? Well, I want to bring you through a couple of passages uh, this morning before we go to the communion table. Um, I put this in before we get into John. And since John wrote this in Revelation as an old man, 90 years old. <laughs> Let me set the stage for you. John, 90 years old. Probably riddled with arthritis. Probably has scars from being beaten up for presenting Christ. Probably had a problem walking. He's imprisoned on a island that has nothing but rocks. And yet he went to worship. He went to worship. How do I know? Because it says it right here. Listen to this. Revelation 1. I, John, your brother and companion in what? The suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus Christ, who was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So why was he sent there? Well, for two reasons. He was sentenced to death when he was in Jerusalem for being a rebel because he preached Christ. And history books tell us that he was sentenced to be boiled in a cauldron of oil in a public square as his death sentence. History also tells us that when they put him in that cauldron, Doyle wouldn't touch him. So now the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the political leaders said, okay, what do we do with this guy? They said, well, we'll put him in prison on a desolate island off the Greek coast. And that's how he ended up there, but that was God's province. Because John wasn't finished yet. At 90 years old, he's still worshiping. He's worshiping in spirit and truth. And, he, and God gives him this incredible vision on a day where he's worshiping. How do I know that? Well, look at it. On the Lord's day. What day is that? A Sunday. I was in the spirit and behind me I heard 
a, a voice, a loud voice like a trumpet. Any of you ever have a trumpet blowing your ear? It's going to get your attention, right? And this is what the voice said. Oh, I think I skipped a verse. Did I skip a verse? No? Okay. Here's what the voice said. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. These were real churches at the time. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice. That's strange language, right? I turned to see the voice. Usually you turn to see the person, but this voice was so loud, so dominating. John says, I turned to see who was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the, the lampstands was one dressed like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. This is the risen Christ. The resurrected, risen Christ in his eternal state, in a robe, dressed down to his feet. Well, of course, he's prophet, priest, and king, right? The attire meant something back then. Reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest, another symbol of royalty. He's the king of kings, the lord of lords. Here's the wow factor. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. You know those type of eyes that can look right into your soul? His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, a, a, a symbol of stability. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Well, where did he get that from? He was on a desert rocky island in the ocean with the waves breaking against the rocks. And, and, and John's doing his best to describe what he saw and what he heard. In his right hand, he held the seven stars coming out of his mouth. Um, was a sharp, double-edged sword. Well, well, what's that? The word of God. He is the word. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, look what John did. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. There's worship. He was so overwhelmed by the holiness of the risen Christ, by his presence, by his brilliance. 90 years old, he fell at his feet. Listen, in 90 years old, I bet you had a problem getting up. At 71 years old, I would have a problem getting up. But Jesus deserves no less. He's worshiping in spirit. It says he was in the spirit. He was yielded to whatever the spirit wanted from him that day, worshiping God. And when he saw the risen, resurrected Christ, he fell at his feet. And look at the words. Then he, Jesus, placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I, I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Wow. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. 
the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Wow. This started this great vision. By the way, I'm prepping you uh, uh, starting next week in a series of um, prophecy and end times. But let me tell you something. Don't be afraid of the book of Revelation. You're going to understand it better because we're going to go through Daniel first, which is essential to go to Revelation. But here's how people approach Revelation. Either they don't want to read it because it's too scary, or they read it and they try to map out the exact time when Christ is coming, what it's going to look like, and this and that. None of that means anything. The book of Revelation is a book of worship in light of who Jesus is, in light of his second coming. Now, he's coming again. You can't stop it. I can't stop it. I don't want to stop it. I wish it was today. It's going to be a lot of people taken by surprise. Let's go back to John as a younger man starting at chapter 12 in the Gospel of John. Listen to this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. You know what Bethany means? Does anybody know what that means? Beth in Hebrew is house. All right? Bethel is house of God. I'm giving you a Hebrew lesson here, okay? Bethany... And I don't know why they would name a town this. I don't know the history behind it. But Bethany means a house of depression. I'm sorry? Depression. It could be agony. It could be agony. Where Lazarus lived. Remember, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the grave. Took him from being dead to being alive again. What a great picture of our salvation. Jesus didn't have to do that. But in love, he did that, right? And now, because people were flocking to Jesus and they wanted to see Lazarus, it made the religious establishment even more angry at Jesus. Six days before the Passover. This is near the end of Jesus' ministry. Where Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining uh, at the table. Here's a dinner. Now you say, well, pastor, this isn't a worship service. I would beg to differ with you. Because who was the guest of honor? Jesus. He's the guest of honor. See, that's what we miss today, I think. The re- one of the reasons why I chose Revelation is because in, that, in Revelation it says that Jesus walks among his church. That means he's here. He's here. When we worship in spirit and truth, we lose sight of that. You know why? Because we were more interested in how the praise band did, how what the preacher's going to do, or 
what so and so is going to be here and all of that. No, it's only Jesus. He's the guest of honor. Remember Martha? They, this is not the first encounter with Martha and her sister Mary. Jesus used their house as a refuge and was a good refuge. He had a close friendship with all three of them. And remember the first time that it's recorded that he went to the house? Mary was, I mean, Martha was the doer. She wanted to make sure, you know, all the cobwebs were clean and the food was, was good and everything was just right for Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's how she served Jesus. But it was Mary, her sister, who chose to sit at Jesus' feet, learning from Jesus. And Martha got a little bit irate and said, went to Jesus and squealed on her sister, right? And said, Lord, look at her. I mean, she's just sitting there. I'm doing all the work. Tell her to do something. And Jesus says to her, Martha, look, she chose the more important thing. Because Jesus wasn't going to be there much longer. So, of course, Martha's serving. She's worshiping in her service. Now, listen. When we worship in spirit and truth, and Jesus is the guest of honor, there's a worship service going on. Notice there was no praise band here. Notice there wasn't all sorts of lighting around. Probably a lot of candles, a lot of torches, and maybe they sang some hymns. It's possible. But Jesus was the guest of honor. You see, one of the definitions of true worship is serving Christ. Not ourselves, but serving Christ. And that's what was happening here. Martha worshiping her Lord by preparing and serving a meal for this celebration in his honor. And this took place at a table. A little later on, we're going to celebrate at a table. And you know who's the guest of honor? Jesus. And that's why we call it the Lord's table. What does this say in the 23rd Psalm? In the 23rd Psalm, the picture changes a little bit. Because I believe it's a prophecy about the end times and, and the banquet we're going to be uh, privy to. It says, Lord, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Wow. The one we should be serving in love now served will be serving us. I can't even imagine that. My, my inclination would be, hey, Lord, sit down. I'll do it. I'll do it. There's something special that happens at a dinner table or ought to happen at a dinner table. I want to suggest to you that we've lost this because most people don't even eat together anymore. 
And what's supposed to happen at dim dinner table is supposed to be that discourse between one another, you know, how you doing, how, how was your day, you know, what would you like to talk about? There could be some real intimate conversations going on at that dinner table. And that's exactly what was going on here. If you ever want to get to know somebody, have them over for dinner. And I guarantee you, you'll get to know them real quick. Let's look at this. Well, before I leave this, part of worship, real worship, biblical worship, worship where we worship in spirit and truth, is serving Jesus. Can we understand that? That's why worship doesn't only happen on Sundays, because we should be worshiping Jesus in everything we do. In our work, in our home, in schools, in our neighborhoods, we serve the risen Christ. Then we find out worship is also sacrificial. We don't like that word. We don't like the, what do you mean sacrificial? Here's what I mean. When we worship in spirit and truth, it's going to demand time. It's going to demand money. And it's going to demand using your gifts for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. That requires sacrifice. You know, overall, we're a pretty affluent culture. And many times, and I don't want to insult anybody, but many times when we give, we're not giving sacrificially. We're giving kind of from our extra money. I'm not saying everybody, but this is the, uh, you know, hey, I get statistics all, all the time. Less than 3% of professing Christians tithe. No wonder churches have financial problems. And you say, well, that's not fair, Pastor, because, you know, we, we, serve, we serve with our, our time and, and in other ways. No, no, not, it's, it's very fair. Because I can tell you, and not that I want to see it, I don't care, but I can tell you, you show me your checkbook, I'll tell you where your priorities are. Show me your calendar. And I'll tell you where your priorities are. God forgive us, but worship ought to be sacrificial. David was running from Saul, and he came across a farmer who had a uh, threshing house where they would separate the wheat and all. And, and David had seen the Lord work in incredible ways in his life, in his prayer life, in, in his everyday life. And it, it was a Sabbath, and he wanted to worship. This is the king of Israel. He goes to the farmer, and he says, I want, I want to buy your threshing house to have a worship service. And the farmer says, you're the king. Just take it. It's yours. And David makes this incredible statement. 
I shall not worship without sacrifice. I want to pay you for it. David was on to something. Worship the man's sacrifice. Look, Mary, now we come to Mary, reclining at Jesus' feet again. Where else would you expect Mary to be, right? Reclining at Jesus' feet again. Mary took about a pint of pure nard. Now, <laughs> don't get grossed out here. This is expensive perfume. A pint of it would be a year's salary. Not cheap, right? An expensive perfume. She poured it where? On Jesus' feet. And she wiped his feet with her hair. This is a beautiful illustration of sacrifice. She could have taken that perfume and sold it and used the money for herself. Right? Isn't that true? But with no thought of that, she chose to worship Jesus at his feet. She did something that was so countercultural and counter-religious that she put her own life in, in danger. For you see, a woman was not supposed to touch a male in public. She was unworthy. That's what the culture said. Mary didn't care. She was in the presence of Jesus worshiping. She didn't care. Then she let down her hair. You could get stoned to death for that in that culture. You don't let your hair down in public. That's reserved for your husband. Not only she let down her hair, she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. Talk about sacrifice. In the community, her reputation was shot. She didn't care because she had Jesus with her. And look at this. Because of Mary's worship, the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. See, here's the wow factor. Where there's worship in spirit and truth, it's sweet. There's nothing like it. Not even lasagna cooking in the oven smells that good. There's nothing like it. And notice, Mary's one person. <laughs> and her worship filled the whole house with the sweet, fragrant smell of worship. You see, sin is a stench in God's nose. That's what the scripture says. But worship in, in spirit and truth it's a sweet fragrance. Mary got that. <laughs> now. But one of, his, one of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, good old Judas, right? Judas Iscariot, who was later, be, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. 
Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor is worth a year's wages? Ah, oh, Judas, what a, what, a, what a sentimental thought. And he meant none of it. He just wanted the money to put in his treasury bag so he can help himself to it. Judas missed it. Of course he missed it. He was plotting to get what he can get from this guy who was popular. <laughs> Look at this. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself with what was put into it. Okay? That's why, one of the reasons why we in this church set up finances the way we did, because I don't want to know who gives anything. I don't need to know, I don't want to know. We have a financial secretary to, uh, for that who is very, very good at keeping confidences and that's the way it ought to be. I don't want to know. It's not important I know. It's important that God knows. And it's important he knows the reason why. There was a time after I graduated seminary, uh, I was out of work for almost three months. And uh, Mary Lou and I, we were candidating at churches, so we're doing a lot of traveling uh, and all, and there were some expenses. But we made the commitment that we were not, we were not going to stop tithing. Well, what did I tithe? I tithed my unemployment check because I got laid off, trusting that God would provide. And I'm not doing, telling you this to, to lift me up. I'm just telling you what God did. During those three months, I didn't miss a single bill. During those three months, we ate pretty good. A lot of hot dogs and beans, but we ate pretty good. And then God provided me a job, not in a church, but probably the best job I ever had in my life, secularly speaking. You see, God's got a good sense of humor. Worship demands sacrifice. Time, talent, treasure. Jesus rebuked Judas. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial, which was soon the last Passover Jesus is going to celebrate. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And he tried to teach Judas, Judas, this is what worship is all about. Well, of course, he didn't get it, unfortunately. Meanwhile, a, loud, uh, um, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not because of him, but also, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, who he, whom he had raised 
from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to what? Kill Lazarus as well. Listen, we want to get this Jesus out of the way because he's endangering our pride, our prestige, our power, our money. And we got to get rid of the evidence too because by Jesus raising Lazarus from, from the grave proves that the Father sent him and he's the Messiah. So not only do we take out the messenger, we have to remove the evidence. Kill them both. These were the religious people who were supposed to know how to worship. These were the religious people who were supposed to know better. But instead you had a woman sitting at the feet of Jesus who was willing to sacrifice perfume that cost her a year's salary. For on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Listen. Worship always confronts the world system. True worship. Worship that is biblical. Worship that is done in spirit and truth always confronts the world's system. I don't care. Because the world's system needs to be confronted. And you know what? They still want to get rid of Jesus, don't they? And they want to get rid of you and me. Because we're the evidence that Jesus is alive. And we're the evidence that Jesus still does miracles because if he can save a wretch like me, he can save anyone. I included this passage. I'm going to close with this before we go to the Lord's table. But this is from Ephesians chapter 5. Would you follow along with me? This is Paul's instructions to the churches in Ephesus. And he says this to them. He's trying to encourage them. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Loved by who? Loved by Christ. And walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. And did what? Gave himself up for us as a what? What's the word? Say it again like you're alive. As a fragrant offering. And what's the next word? Sacrifice to God. Wow. You mean Jesus dying on the cross for us was an act of worship? That was the highest act of worship. Because he paid the penalty we can never repay for our sin. Have we lost sight of that? He goes on to say, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Boy, that went out the window even in the church. Professing believers living together out of wedlock, having sex together out of wedlock, or any kind of impurity, 
or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, talk, or coarse jesting, uh, or coarse joking, which are out of place rather than thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater. That's strong words. And has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once, uh, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Worshiping in spirit and truth demands our all. Because whether we realize it or not, when people who love Christ get together, and this is why it's important to get together in church, Christ is standing right here. And we should respond no less than the way the Apostle John did on Patmos. We should respond no less than the way Mary did at the table. There's a progression to worship, and I don't have time to go into this with you today, but it'll come, it'll come across as we um, study the Olivet Discourse and, and then uh, Daniel. But worship ought to be sacrificial with service, with Jesus as the centerpiece, which ultimately will turn into, with the help of the Holy Spirit, evangelism outside these walls. Don't you think everybody at that banquet, after it was over, went out and talked about what happened? This Mary did something nuts. She let down her hair. She, she anointed Jesus' feet with, with this perfume. She could have made money on it. What was she thinking? Well, maybe there's something to Jesus. New life. New hope. Salvation. And a hope to come. A sure hope. See, Mary was just a woman. She was considered property. So was Martha. But they knew enough to serve and to worship and to sacrifice the one to, for the one who died for them. Jesus was the greatest man, fully man, fully God, to raise women up to a place of prominence in his kingdom. There's a reason for that. Men tend to be a little bit more thick-headed. Carmen's over here shaking her head. 
Women tend to get it a little faster than men. Peter was like that, wasn't he? But Peter had the mouth to go along with it, right? We're to worship in spirit and truth. As we come around the Lord's table, here we go. We call this a communion table. You realize when he comes back, again, we don't need this anymore. Because we'll have a real table with the Lord Jesus as a guest of honor. So he's here, but this is his table. And Paul in Corinthians gives instructions to the church because they were coming drunk. Imagine. They were coming just to get food. They were coming fighting with each other. The rich hated the poor. The poor hated the rich. They weren't coming to worship in spirit and truth. And Paul had to rebuke them at the table. He said, listen, you got it all wrong. There should be none of this. They were arguing. They had a number of pastors because the church at Corinth was, was large and they met in house churches. And the people actually got into this mindset where they were saying, Oh, I like Apollos. He's the best pastor. No, I like Paul. He's the best pastor. No, no, no. I like Isaac. He's the best pastor. And Paul's saying, shut up. You're coming to worship Jesus. You come in a worthy manner. So he says, you have to examine yourselves. You need to confess any sin that's there. This is the time to come clean as we examine ourselves. Let the Word of God examine us. Let the Holy Spirit examine us. Let's confess sin that we know we need to confess. That's what Paul tells them. Let's repent, turn from it, and ask God, help us not to do this again. Not to sin like this again. Because only He can help us. Let's make sure our hearts are clean as we come to the table. So I'm going to ask that the elements be given out, please. Um, I need a couple of volunteers. Would somebody do it? Come on, James. We broke you in. You can do it. As James distributes the bread, let's hold it together. Let's, let's all use this time to examine our own hearts, to confess what needs to be confessed, so we can come to the table in a worthy manner.
James just graciously served you. Served me. Isn't that wonderful? Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table, our desire is that you be honored. And thank you, Father, that we can come and just have this communion with you where we confess what we need to confess. Ask your forgiveness. Repent of it. And Father, Lord Jesus, at that last supper, that Passover, took the bread and broke it and told the disciples that this bread, it was a symbol of his broken body, which was broken for them in love. He says, when you eat this, do this in remembrance of him. So let's partake of the bread. I'll ask James to pass the cup out, please, and would you hold it, and we'll partake together. The Bible says that there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of the blood from a perfect sacrifice. And that was Jesus. Because he was fully God, fully man. He was without blemish. He was the perfect sacrifice to make atonement for your sin and mine. And Jesus took that third cup of the Passover and used it as an illustration. And he says... This represents his blood, the blood of the new covenant. And that new covenant means that the moment we receive him, 
Our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. And not only that, he'll be with us even to the end of the age. He says, when you drink this, do this in remembrance of him. James, thank you. Frank, can I impose on you for the benevolence offering? For the, the fun? We're going to put you to work now. Because it's, uh, yeah, excellent. Thank you. Uh, because of uh, this Sunday being uh, Communion Sunday, we have a uh, benevolence fund offering if you feel so let to give. So uh, I'll ask uh, Melissa to come up, Pat, when she's ready. As we take the offering, uh, we'll be singing one of my favorite songs because I need to be reminded, before I met Christ, I was going straight to hell. You were too. But he saved us by his amazing grace. Okay. Good. 
set free by God my Savior has ransomed me and like a flood His mercy reigns unending love amazing grace The earth shall soon dissolve like snow the sun singing. I hope you enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you for coming today. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you send us from this place rejoicing in you, rejoicing in the relationship that we have with Jesus because he died for us. Help us to share that faith and help us to point others to a relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name, for his glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Not bad. Enjoy the day. God bless you.